Hey, it's Dr. Marissa Lee Naismith here, and I'm so honored to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. Listen, and you will be inspired by amazing healthcare practitioners, voice teachers, and music industry professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to help you live your best life every day. As singers, our whole body is our instrument, and our instrument echoes how we feel physically, mentally, and emotionally. So don't wait any longer. Take charge and optimize your instrument now. Remember that to sing is more than just learning about how to use the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Today's guest is Dr. Ginevra Williams, a passionate pedagogue who shares her unique insights on the teaching of singing, the training of singing teachers, and her thoughts on the voice from a holistic perspective with limitless enthusiasm. Over the years, Ginevra has received international acclaim from the voice community for her pioneering work into the training of young singers. In this episode, Ginevra discusses her keen interest in vocal health and how she transitioned her work with young voices and turned her attention to investigating healthy and efficient vocal function for singers. As a leading expert in the field of vocal health, Ginevra shares how her practical experience has resulted in a unique understanding of the human voice. She firmly believes that the voice should be examined from a biophysical and social standpoint and describes how all these factors can have a significant impact on voice production and vocal health. Ginevra also talks about her work with the singing voice with a particular emphasis on singing voice rehabilitation. Dr. Ginevra Williams is a leading exponent in the field of vocal health and singing teaching. After a successful career in opera, Ginevra turned her attention to investigating healthy and efficient vocal function. She was the first singing teacher to be awarded a PhD in voice science in the UK and won the 2010 British Voice Association Van Lawrence Prize for her outstanding contribution to voice research. Her book, Teaching Singing to Children and Young Adults, has been enormously popular with singing teachers throughout the world. She is well known for her imaginative and rigorous training courses for singing teachers in the UK, the US and Europe. As a teacher of singing, she works with professional singers of all ages, as well as training teachers in rehabilitation for vocal health education and BAPAM. I know you're going to love this episode with Ginevra as much as I loved interviewing her. So let's go to today's episode. Well, welcome to today's episode, Ginevra Williams. Thank you for being on the show. And thank you so much for having me. Well, we are very honoured and very privileged to have you. You are an extremely passionate pedagogue and you're so highly regarded in the singing voice community that uh, we're lucky to have you on the show. So thank you again. We met briefly in Copenhagen in 2019 at PVOC. And 
I was presenting in the same session as you and I was in all the information that you were presenting on. And then you, we kind of crossed paths here in Australia virtually when you were presenting as a keynote speaker at our national conference last year in October. And both of those occasions, you were presenting on the training of young voices. And that seems to be where you have made your mark and you are in the literature and where you describe the training and you offer strategies and that seems to be your area of expertise. But there are many sides to your teaching and there are so many things that you do. But uh, before we launch into all of that, did you actually start singing yourself as a child? Yes, all children sang. I sang in in school and I sang in a local church choir. I belonged to a dance school and we did shows a couple of times a year and so I would do my song and dance routines. And uh, So so singing and performing was always part of my life. And I never had any singing lessons because you didn't then when you were at school. Mm. It was a thing for older people to do. And I never knew that you could be a singer as a job. Really? No, nobody told me that. No, I was oh. due to be a doctor and I rebelled a little bit against that one and uh, I went off to study botany. Well, fortunately for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these things come around because I've ended up working in vocal health and rehabilitation and working in clinics and working with doctors all the time. So yes. I think where your passions are all through life, if you just keep taking the right turning each time you get an option, then you end up joining all of those things together. Yes, that's so true. And obviously then you weren't going to become a dancer. No, I was rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it with a passion. I loved just the feeling of expressing yourself Mm. with your body. And I did reasonably well, I mean, in ballet, you know, doing point work and and things, but I just did not have, I did not have a body that was going to do it. And the same with sport. I was never any good at sport. I never got picked for any school teams or anything. And it's only as a a much older adult that I've got into sport on my own terms. So I go running every day, which I absolutely love. And, uh, And I do my exercises and I love that. Nobody's judging me. That's so true. And you're not letting the team down if you're last because you're only racing against yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm not even doing that. I'm just having a lovely time running around with my dog. Yes. And so you were awarded a PhD and you were the first singing teacher to be awarded a PhD in voice science in the UK. So tell us a little bit about that. Singing teachers for a long time, I think, were basically treated like, I don't know, glamorous extras. I can't, they weren't taken seriously as people with academic ideas, with a real sense of how they could be, make a useful contribution to the music community, other than getting people to sing better. which is great but actually getting people to sing better is more efficient if you know what you're doing exactly and in order to know what you're doing you need to do a bit of research and or talk to people who are doing research 
So, I mean, the reason I went into research in the first place was because I was teaching boy choristers and I had a lot of questions to ask. I didn't know. I mean, the main question I had was, are we actually doing them good or are we doing them harm by putting them through intensive training? Right. And I didn't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And I looked and looked and realized that no one had ever asked that question before. So that was why I ended up doing a PhD. That's incredible. And your PhD was on the training of adolescent voices? Well, it was on the training, it was on intensive training of boy choristers. But of course, boy choristers go up to and obviously include voice change. Yes. Because, you know, you can have a cutoff point of, of age 13, but you're going to have some whose voices have already, you know, halfway through changed by then, you'll get some who, whose voices don't change for another year or so. This is where we have to have a difference between chronological age and biological age. Mm, so um, true. And biological age is your own development, your own personal development. But, of course, our education system puts people into chronological age. Exactly. Yep, so true. And somewhere along your journey, you have transitioned into this singing voice rehabilitation program that you have devised. How did that come about? Because I was looking at choristers in terms of their vocal health, what we were actually doing to their voices by getting them to sing for 25 hours a week, I was looking at their health and development. And of course, that brings in all of the assessment techniques that the clinicians use to assess health and development. Mm -hmm. So there I was working with doctors and speech and language therapists and also looking at anatomical development. So it always ties in. You know, when you go deep into a subject, you have to spread very wide through a lot of areas in order to go deep. So the health and well-being always very, very much part of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then I got more involved in helping singers who had had problems, had had injuries, because I understood where they were coming from. Yes. I understood what what the nature of that injury was, or rather, I thought I did. <laughs> I thought, but you know. As we go through life and learn more and more, you realise how little you knew. That's so true. You do feel that, don't you? The more you learn, the more you realise there is to learn. You've only started to scratch the scratch, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. So did you find then that there was quite a demand for this training from the singing voice community? Absolutely. A huge demand because... So many singers have had injuries and problems. Yeah. In fact, I don't know of a singer who hasn't. Yeah. The singer who hasn't had one yet. And it's just something that we work through, we go through, and, it, and understanding the nature of our, the problems that we have with our voices, you really need to understand the whole person and you need to understand how they're psychological profile affects what they're doing, the environment in which they're working, the other pressures that are being put on them, other exactly. things that are happening in their lives, yeah. other health issues they may be having, all of this will impact on the voice. So exactly. having a, an understanding of this really, really helps you to then 
help rehabilitate that singer and get them back on their feet. So I think there's a huge interest in this because so many people have had problems and not been able to find the help that they've needed. I think you are talking my language when you are talking about the voice holistically from that approach. Absolutely. You can't do it any other way. You can't just see pathology on the vocal folds. You have to look at the wider picture, look at the person, and you have to address what they want from their voice. Mm. Seeing pathology on the vocal folds is not just about getting rid of the pathology. It's about asking the singer what they'd like to be able to do. Yeah. What would you like from your voice? Yes. Yes. If I fix that, will it make that not work for you? So those are the very important conversations to have. And for that, you need to understand the person and you need to understand the environment in which they're working and what they would like to be able to do. So have you noticed that there is a trend? This is probably going to be a very controversial question. Do you see that there are more pathologies presenting in uh, singers across CCM genres as opposed to classical? No. Thank you. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) No statistics. No statistics to show that one. What we do see is we notice problems when we're working at a very, very specific level. Mm -hmm. So if you're working with a voice at a general level and you're singing a wide variety of styles and you're singing once a week and you're singing, so you're not putting a huge amount of of impact on the voice. You're less likely to either develop problems and you're less likely to notice them if you do. But if you're working in a genre which is so finely tuned that you notice the tiniest, tiniest little change on one particular pitch, on one particular vowel, then you know that there's something not quite right. And this is part of the sort of forensic process of trying to work out what's going on, because nearly always there's nothing to see. That's so When there's a voice problem, when a singer presents with a problem, I'm finding I can't do this one, I used to be able to. You go and have a look, perfectly healthy larynx, nothing wrong, off you go. And what happens, the singer just thinks, well, I must be going mad then, because there is a problem. So if you can't see it, what is it? Yes. And we are so in our heads as singers. If we think that there's something up, we tend to play that in our minds over and over and to a point where we even start to feel that there's something not right. I mean, Mm. there could very well be as you're probably heading down that road with what you're discussing right now. Yes. Well, I think actually the head stuff... (laughs) It's important in any illness. I think in any healthcare environment, you have to look at the whole person. If you say, oh, that problem, you know, your problem of chronic pain is all in your head, you know, to which I say, well, show me the pain that isn't in your head. Yes, so true. You know, that's where it is. Yes. And it's one type or another type or, you know, it has become oversensitized or it's become, you know, gone from one to another because it then becomes tangled with anxiety and with expectation and with fear and to have a performer who doesn't have any kind of anxiety or fear is never going to happen yes we just humans yeah exactly we had a discussion last time that we spoke and I shared with you my story that I ran into some vocal issues when I was touring with a rock band many years ago 
And I was a trained singer and I was doing everything perfectly well or as well as I could be. But the lifestyle on the road and the pressures from management, the conditions that I was working in in venues and on stage didn't help my cause. And it wouldn't matter how much technique I drew on, I was going to run into strife. And I know that was probably one of the most anxious times in my life. So I totally understand. And that situation was a combination of many, many things. It wasn't one problem. You can't stand there and say, Mm. well, if they hadn't made me do that, then everything would have been fine. Exactly. It was all those things. It's a build of A plus B plus C plus D plus E. And there's elements of the social and the environmental and Mm. the workplace there's also elements of of the the psychological and not just your own stuff but the stuff of other people around you and we talked about you know being the only woman in the group I was I was the only female massive pressure that puts on you yes and as a female that was working with a number of male musicians if I complained I was called or you know the complaining chick singer in the band and I was just a typical woman having a whinge and my voice wasn't listened to, was never heard. And when I tried to leave the situation and I desperately wanted to leave the band, I was bullied into staying and I was told that I would never work again if I didn't see all the commitments through over the next few months. And I had to continue to get up on stage, barely had a voice that I could sing with, let alone all the anxiety that I was feeling and how poorly I was feeling about myself, my instrument, the environment. It was unbearable. And that bullying environment happens in every workplace, in every genre. There's the same bullying environment in opera management. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You've been confronted with that yourself? No, not myself, but I have helped a lot of singers deal with it. Mm-hmm. But actually, yes, when I say not myself, of course I have. <laughs> I've just normalized you it. You know? it. I, it's, it's just, like, I don't you know, want to remember that. do that. Yes. And the whole, the sexual bullying and just mm-hmm. all of that oh, stuff yes. that you really could oh, do yeah. without. Yes. But singers being basically treated like disposable commodities. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a voice problem and you had to pull out of a couple of performances, well, sorry, but we've got someone else who won't pull out. So bye. I would have loved for them to tell me that. They would not let me go. In that situation, that was my problem. It wasn't you are disposable, you're indisposable, and we're not letting you go. So that was a big issue for me. And that pressure, of course, happens with groups that rely on particular individuals. Mm. So if you're in a touring theatre company and you don't have understudies because it's on a, you know, reduced budget, if you're in a group, well, any group that is a number of individuals who work together, who know each other, who are, you know, a team, you can't just replace one member of the team. Yes, that's so So in those situations, we have to be mindful of what problems might occur and make sure that they don't yes and ideally obviously prevention is better than cure Mm, so true so what are the 
most common issues or pathologies that you're seeing amongst the singing community at the moment? What are the things that teachers are most interested in learning about right now? Okay, a few areas. The most vocal problem is caused by what is generally known as muscle tension dysphonia. And that just means that the muscles that are working to produce the sound have got out of balance and there's overworking in some and underworking in others. And that's a sort of coverall for anything and everything that is not an actual pathology. So if you can't see lumps and bumps and swellings and things, then it's obviously must be muscle tension dysphonia, which is where the singing teacher comes in, because it's our job to work out how to help people to sing without that unnecessary tension and and to sing with a balanced function and to sing in the easiest way they possibly can. So that is, I would say, the most common presentation. And of course, that can be anything from, you know, getting a little bit more tired than usual. Mm -hmm to complete inability to make a sound at all. Really? It can be that severe? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You can have a functional aphonia where you just lose the ability to make any sound at all can be as a result of trauma. And you can have past trauma. Do you see? Well, I do because I work in clinics where it comes up. It's not very common. Yeah. So this is the the clinician's bias, you see. The clinician sees all the problems and assumes the world is full of problems, which it isn't. No, that's a terrible attitude to have. (laughs) I know, but it is a known thing. So doctors will catastrophize about things because they see the worst. The other thing that I think people are a lot more aware of now is the influence of hormones on the voice. Mm. There's a lot more discussion now about menopause. And you think, well, hang on a minute. Menopause has been around for as long as women have lived beyond the age of 50. It applies to 50% of the population. Why is it such an unknown in terms of what it does to your body? And really, we're only just doing the proper research now to find out exactly what's going on with menopause and with these changes and how it affects the voice and how variable that is, and some people's responses will be very different from other people's, but to know that it's a thing. And so when you have somebody presenting with certain issues in their voice, it's one of the questions that you you can ask. Yes, when I was studying vocal pedagogy, one of the things I remembered about the ageing voice was (laughs) someone described the ageing voice as this, that granddad starts to sound like grandma and grandma starts to sound like granddad. (laughs) And I'll never forget that. It was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. But then I started to take note of elderly people and, or should I say, the more mature members of our community and their speaking voices. And it was true. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not until a lot older. We're looking at people in their sort of, you know, beyond their mid 80s. Yes. So... But of course, we've still got them singing and they need to be singing because Mm. singing is so good for you. Yes, there's so many benefits that have been recognised now that are associated with singing. So what are the most common things then that teachers want to learn about? I know the uh, voice through menopause is definitely one thing that we've been asked a lot about here in Australia, that teachers in our community want to learn more about that area. Is there anything else that people are all of a sudden their interest has been ignited in a particular area of voice? 
Well, the knowledge to guide somebody through adolescent voice change is very, very important. And I know not all teachers teach youngsters, but really just to understand what to expect, what where you can challenge singers, where you can challenge mm-hmm. them safely and sensibly and say, no, I think you can try that. Let's see what happens if we do that and know that it's not going to cause a problem. Yes. And yes. I think a lot of the anxieties of teachers come from fear of doing harm. Mm. And you need to know more about what you're doing to know that you can't actually hurt somebody by doing that, that exactly. actually that's okay. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also knowing how to deal with the with the person that's in front of you that's going through the voice change, whether it's female or male, and the anxiety that they feel when they're singing. It's on both sides. I, I know that the boys that I teach, some of them really don't care. You know, it's they're not frightened of what noise is going to come out on any given day. And then you have others that are so tense and so tight because they're worried that they're going to have a massive voice fail. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's so much identity tied up with it. Mm. Um, and we are our voice. You know, what? how do we define ourselves by what we look like, by what we sound like? And of course, teenagers are at this crucial point of working out their own identity and working out who they are who they want to be like what kind of tribe they want to belong to Mm. where they feel at home where they feel you know their their sort of soul is and it's a really really important part of their development and we know that it's very much tied up with music that everybody relates to the music that they were listening to when they were 13 or 14 yes that is an incredibly powerful time for making our musical decisions and our musical identities. Yes. And that's one of my philosophies and one of the inspirations for this show is that singing is a higher form of self-expression. And, you know, you'll hear the tagline when you hear the intros and the outros to the show, but everything that we feel uh, physically, mentally and emotionally is echoed in our bodies and our bodies are our instruments. So if you have a kink in your body, it's going to be there when you sing. Yeah, and if you've had a difficult day and or you've just had some bad news or you're worried about something, it will be there in your voice. Absolutely. And so on a, a deeper, broader level, if you've got long-term anxieties, that's when you start to build longer-term, not problems necessarily with the voice, mm. but just things building up. So, so that, that's very much applicable to the adolescent as much as it is to singers in their 20s and in their 30s who are building their careers and building their identities mm-hmm. as, as such. Yes. Now, I would love to know more, and I'm sure our audience would love to know more about your Singing Voice Rehabilitation Programme that has been accredited. Can you unpack that for us? Because it right. sounds this amazing. Is... This is, oh, see how excited you just got there. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so exciting. It is. Honestly, (laughs) this was a journey that, I mean, it's a journey I've been on for ages and ages, but it started to become a possibility a couple of years ago when I was discussing with Stephen King how we needed some kind of pathway for singing teachers. Because what happens is that singing teachers start to express an interest in looking after 
voices and in getting to know a little bit more about vocal illness, about vocal problems. Mm-hmm. And so often they are just immediately shut up by the clinicians, by the speech and language therapists, by the psychotherapists, by the ENTs, yeah. who have spent years and years and years getting to where they've got to, getting to their particular expertise. And they don't want some jumped up singing teacher just reading a couple of papers and, and setting themselves up as someone who knows what they're doing. And that's so fair enough So you can see too. why. Yeah, absolutely fair right. enough. But my argument is that as singers and singing teachers, we have our own expertise. And I have spent years and years and years studying my area. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot more about it than any speech therapist or ENT surgeon or any of those specialists. So why can't we work together? Why can't we form teams where we have a multidisciplinary group? Yeah. And this doesn't mean the sequential multidisciplinary where you go for your ENT consultation and you get looked at and then you get six sessions of speech and language therapy and then you get three sessions of psychotherapy and then you get some osteopathy and then you go back to the speech therapist and then so everything is done in sequence and it takes forever to get anywhere and is that a generic program that it's not changeable based on the person and their needs it is but it can be changeable but it tends to be sequential right Whereas if you work together in parallel and you have your session with the psychotherapist who then has a conversation with the speech and language therapist and says, you know, we found this and could you work on this? And and then you have your session with an osteopath and then you have a singing lesson and then you're back to the psychotherapist and everything is working as a team and you might need to spend three weeks with a nutritionist sorting that out before you can move on to working with the singing teacher. You know, so there are times when you need to take a bit of a break from this whole package. But the important thing is, is that everybody works together and who's at the centre of it? Individual with the voice. That person is at the centre. It's a human. We're a human species too. (laughs) So our training, vocal health education, is set up really with that holistic sense that any voice problem is very much a combination of several things and we look at the biopsychosocial model i love so when we look at the bio which might be the fact that you've got a bit of muscle tension or you've got a bit of discomfort or you might have a bit of reflux that's the bio the biomedical it might be that you've got a sore ankle and a sore ankle can affect the way that you sing yes but it's still biomedical (laughs) But then we need to take into account everything else. So the social, which is the environment, which is the pressures on you, which is your working environment, which is the kind of repertoire you sing. That's the social side. How loudly you're being expected to sing. You know, whether you've got the right kind of in-ear monitors. Simple stuff, but that's all part of that environment. And that will affect your biomedical. And then your biomedical will affect the social, which is, of course, all tied up with the psychological as well. So everything is this sort of whirling round and round and round conversation between all of these parts. And you don't deal with one in isolation and you don't leave one out of the picture either. And they actually communicate with one another. Yes, Totally. So our training for singing teachers takes all of this into the sort of philosophy of it. And we are giving singing teachers just a bit of information about all of these other areas, about all of the other ways 
that can impact on the voice so that they are able to make a more rounded decision for the individual. So the first level of training is the vocal health first aid. And that's just basic level. It's nine hours of online content with a quiz at the end. And then you have a little conversation with somebody where you chat about what you've learned. And And that, sorry to interrupt. That's a sort of basic level, but even that is better than most people know. And was that created or has that been informed by a medical person or a pathologist? Oh, it's, oh, we've got a team. Yes. Yep, everybody. Yeah, so we've but, got a psychotherapist, we've got a mindfulness coach, we've got a nutritionist, we've got an exercise specialist, we've got an ENT surgeon, we've got a speech and language therapist, we've got, you know, we've got the whole team who have provided the content for, the for whole, that. All the levels, even that yep. that first tier. Yep. In the That's first incredible. aid level is a wide team of specialists. Yes. yes. And so if someone wants to go further, what's the next level? The next level is the vocal health practitioner. And the vocal health practitioner is the singing teacher who has a better, deeper understanding of issues to do with vocal health. So it's not a rehabilitation specialist. Mm -hmm. It is somebody who understands about health and who can look after singers to make sure they don't have problems Mm -hmm. and to look after singers who may have had problems in the past and to help them get back to their singing. So it's very much working for health rather than it's not therapeutic and it's not rehabilitation, but it is very much informed by all of that. And that training is 30 hours of online content. So that, you know, that's going to take you about three months to do part time. Right. And then we have interactive groups. So then we have group discussions where you look at case studies with a specialist and you discuss them. You know, what would I do? What are you hearing this person saying? Yeah, but what are they not saying? What would you ask them next? Why would you ask them that? So this sort of really in-depth exploration of real-life case studies with an expert in groups. And that's very exciting when you you get to that level. Yes, that sounds as though that would be very handy if, if you had a singer that had been working with either a speech pathologist or had been under the care of an ENT and then was coming to you for singing lessons to get their voices back working again for the singing process. Do you think? Yes. And it's also really, really useful for the clinicians mm-hmm. to know who they can recommend. Yes. So this is why the training is very rigorous and thorough and the assessment is rigorous and thorough because we want to be accountable. We want to guarantee that anyone coming out with that qualification is at a certain level, is able to deal with singers and help singers. Mm-hmm at a certain level of ability. And we won't let people through if they're not. Yes. They just keep going round and round the system <laughs> until they're ready to come out. <laughs> so we'll just keep, we'll keep nurturing them. We'll keep educating them. We'll keep looking after them. Oh, that sounds very kind. <laughs> yeah. And is there another level beyond that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then there's oh, yeah. so, this is where the steak knives come out. <laughs> the, so the practitioner level, the practitioner level will probably take you about six months of part-time study to get through that, to get qualified as a practitioner. And then if you're still really passionate about rehabilitation, you go on to the specialist and that's the vocal rehabilitation specialist. Which is what you are. Which and- is what I am, yes. And there aren't many, I mean, in the UK, there are 
about four or five people who can call themselves vocal rehabilitation specialists. In the US, they call them singing voice specialists. Right. There are, again, not many, not mm-hmm. many, a couple of dozen. Mm-hmm. It's a highly specialised level of knowledge, but, you know, there's room for more. So uh, we need to get more people trained up. So the, the other thing about this training, Marissa, is, of course, that it is international. It is not UK specific. It works in all different cultures in different countries. And we have on our team of specialists providing the content, we have a lot of people from the US. We have people from Europe. We have people from all over the world providing the content because it voices are voices. Yes. I was going to say that a voice is a voice. Yes. And we are basically, we're all same but different, aren't we? We're all the same species, but we're different people. Yeah, but the anatomy is the same. But where there is, we have more in common. There is more that unites us than that which divides us. So how long does it take? Oh, that was very profound. (laughs) How long does it take for that final accreditation? To be a specialist? Hmm. Well, that will depend on how much you come with before you start because we will have people coming into that who already have qualifications you know we've got people who are already a qualified speech and language therapist for example and they then want to extend into other areas we have people coming in who are already qualified counselors or psychotherapists and they need to extend their other specialisms we have people who are gps you know medics general practitioners so People will come with a level of expertise quite often. And we it's not a course for beginners. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. The vocal health first aid is ideal for beginners. It's ideal for anybody. Yeah. But the next levels on are for people who are more experienced, for people who've already been teaching for a while, who are bringing something with them, some experience with them. And so the specialist level will be bespoke training. It'll There are lots of courses that are available but people will pick and choose, pick and mix the ones that will enhance their own skills and their own knowledge. So yes. it's it's totally personal, personally tailored approach to education. That sounds such an amazing course. How many people have been accredited or gone through a part of the program or the whole program so far? So far, well, we only launched the first vocal health first aid training in October last year. Yes, I I realise that's right. It's new. It's new. So we launched that in October last year. We now have over 600 people who've signed up to it and we have well over 300 of those who've already got their certificate. That's not bad in a few months. So that shows you Mm. how many people want to do it how many people want to do it, how accessible it is in terms of being online so you can do it from anywhere. And we've we've got people in over 30 countries who've got their certificates. And also it's very accessible financially. We've made it that the entire company is a not-for-profit company. So what comes in goes out again. Yes, yes. Well, that's certainly giving back to the community. Mm. And it's so exciting. And I'm getting messages two or three a day from people saying, thank you so much. This is what I've been looking for all my life. 
And do you you find that teachers themselves are coming for their own benefit, I mean, for their own instrument, that perhaps they're having problems themselves, especially with all the online teaching? I know so many are talking about problems that they're having with vocal fatigue, for example. So are there Mm -hmm. teachers interested in coming even for their own benefit? Yeah, absolutely. We've got so many interesting people who have signed up to this. We've got, for example, a guy who does, who trains newsreaders. He trains newsreaders and he decided that he needed to know more about the voice and looking after their vocal health. We've got an older lady whose husband had surgery for throat cancer and he was having speech therapy, but she wanted to know more so she could help him back to speaking. So, you know, those are people I would never have imagined would come and do our training. They found it. So it's really is you can apply it at so many levels. School teachers, Mm. school teachers who want to know how not to lose their voice. It's not necessarily for singers. It's just a voice thing. Yeah. I just love the sound of all of this because to me it sounds as though the singer is humanised throughout this process Sometimes, and this is just a little concern that I have, and dare I say it out loud, but I will, sometimes I wonder about the approaches that people are heading towards with the way that they look at the singing voice. And I think that sometimes we forget that you need to look at the person themselves and not just be looking at what the sound waves are doing. You know, just saying, and please don't hate on me, people. I love your work, but I do worry about that. Yeah, yeah. And you can end up just looking at the screen, the wiggles on the screen, and forgetting to look at the body language Mm -hmm. of the person in the room. Yes, or their lifestyle or what's going on with them. And we're not psychologists, I know that, and it's not our job. But those things do impact on the voice and no amount of looking at a screen is going to give you that information that their questions and talking to the human species that you will find that information out. And another level of this, of course, is our duty of care Mm -hmm. as teachers, our duty of care to our students to give them the right advice and to say when you can't, you know, I would suggest you don't take that job. I would suggest that that is not the piece for you to sing. And the younger the student, the more important our duty of care is. Because the singer will look to us for advice. Yeah. And we need to know when to say no, like being a parent, you know, when to say no, but also when saying no is actually not going to be very helpful. Yes. Because if you tell a child they can't do something, they just go and do it when you're not looking. So actually you need to have a conversation with them. And it's no good telling somebody that they can't, they shouldn't smoke because they'll think there's something exciting and romantic about it and they'll go and try it out. Whereas if you have a proper conversation with them about smoking and give them a bit of education to make their own decision, then they're going to be in a much better place. And the same is true about voice use and about how, what kind of repertoire they're singing and how they're singing it and how, who they're trying to sound like mm. and whether that might be a problem sometimes. Yes. I think there's a lot to be said for a code of ethics within our profession because we are practitioners of some kind and every practitioner in in every area of uh, medicine and pathologists and 
I mean, there is a, such a strict guideline and I think sometimes we need to have that within our profession, like a lot more clearly stated perhaps. Yeah, but- yeah. well, we found this with vocal health education because we were sort of crossing over into the clinical side we've had to put in place a code of practice for anybody coming into the organization of what they will and won't do and also we've got a scope of practice for the each level so that describes exactly what you should be able to do and what you should not do and having those boundaries in place is very very important yes i agree now we're going to totally change the subject but I will okay. talk to you about where people can find out more about the program a little later. But now getting back to Ginevra. And okay. I know <laughs> no, you can be excited about <laughs> talking, but oh, I hope there's not vodka in there this hour of the morning. <laughs> no, no, actually, it's because it's a frosted glass, it could be anything, couldn't it? It could be. That's why I was worried. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, Ginevra, we're going to talk about self-care briefly because ultimately, other than talking about the voice from a holistic perspective, I feel that self-care comes under that banner. And you didn't play sport, as you said earlier, as you were growing up and you weren't into exercising, but you were into dancing. That's still a form of sport and you ask any dancer that. And Oh, and I cycled everywhere. Oh, I mean, that was my way of getting anywhere. And if I, my friend lived 10 miles away, I would cycle to their house. So I did get out and about. I was quite fit. Oh, good. <laughs> I just wasn't skilled. There was the difference. Okay. Yes, I, I can relate to that. And But you run now. You shared with I me run. that you participated in a half marathon or a marathon or you're training for one. Was that no? Oh, I've done several half marathons. Oh. And in fact, I quite often run a half marathon at the weekend. I always do a slightly longer run at the weekend and sometimes it's a half marathon. Mm-hmm. So that's, to me, that's not a big deal particularly, but I've never done a full marathon. And what benefits do you find from running? How does it make you feel and how does does it impact on you physically and mentally? Well, it's, I mean, mentally it's running away a lot of the time. It's leaving things behind. It's getting out. I run in the hills and I've always got a view which puts life in perspective. Things move. When you're out in the countryside, the, the landscape around you is changing, but it's changing slowly. So there's not a huge amount of distraction and your mind can go off and wander and process things. I don't listen to music when I'm running. I just run. I listen to the birds and I listen to the water and I listen to whatever's around me. It's very, very therapeutic from that sense. But even then, all right, I'll tell you a story. I was training for the London Marathon back in 2013, for the 2014 marathon. And I was training and I was running and running and I was getting really good pace. I was, you know, doing a an hour of hilly run and getting seven miles under my feet in that time. And, you know, really, I was going to be in the elite, you know, outcome for the marathon. I was absolutely going for it. Go, go. And then I got an injury and it was a catastrophic onset of plantar fasciitis, which can be anything from a little niggle to, in my case, I couldn't actually put weight on my foot for three months. I couldn't walk for three months. And that came about when I look back and thought, why did that injury build? Because injuries build over time. They don't just happen. 
build over time. And it was because six months previously, my mother had died of cancer and I'd been nursing her through that. And my way of coping was Mm -hmm. to run. So I was running, but I was running with the additional baggage of that anxiety and that grief and that anger and all, you know, all of those feelings you feel when you're bereaved. Mm -hmm. And I was putting all of that into my running and my poor body after a while just said, oh, hang on, (laughs) hang on, I can't do this. And it broke. Mm -hmm. And that's what So there's your biopsychosocial model. I was using running as a way of dealing with grief but then I took it too far. Mm-hmm. And how do you go in terms of sleep and nutrition? And do you meditate? Meditation, I think, is probably my running. Mm-hmm. That's when I go into, yeah, into headspace. Yeah, mindfulness. Yeah. 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 And I do, as I say, I don't listen to music. I do I just watch the world around me. Nutrition, I'm... I love food. I love food and I love cooking. So that's easy because I cook everything from scratch and I get an organic veg box delivery every week. I've been a vegetarian for nearly 40 years. Really? What encouraged you to do that? Oh, a combination of factors. Mostly at the time, all meat was factory farmed and I didn't like the idea of factory farming. And the environmental concerns of producing more meat than we needed Yes. Even then, we were very aware of the fact that it used too much land and too much resources. So that was what sort of flipped me over. And then you get into the habit of it. And now I really can't stand the taste and smell of meat. I just couldn't do it. Even if I knew it was the happiest animal mm-hmm. in the world before it yes. died. Yeah. I've always cooked meat for my children, if but that's what they want. You don't but... eat it yourself. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, that was a very scrunchy face then. That was very convincing. <laughs> well, you know, vegetarians often say that the thing that turns them is the smell of bacon cooking. Now, for me, the smell of bacon cooking is one of the most disgusting smells I can think of. Yes, I can't say I eat a lot of so, bacon, but I don't mind a steak, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but I think it's habit. I think after a while you just get into the habit. But yeah. that's fine. It's not a bad habit. Being Italian, I could probably live off pasta. Yeah. I probably do okay. And tomatoes. We have to have tomatoes. Italians love tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. And then once you've got tomatoes, you've got onions and garlic and you've got chili and then you and Yeah, then, you, and then you have pasta and basil. Yeah. Yeah, now we're talking. Okay, we need to stop that. Now... <laughs> Or we'll start dribbling. (laughs) I know. Um, So I do know you shared with me also that you had COVID experience yourself. Mm. You had the virus. So how was that for you? How did you find out and where do you think you contracted the virus from? Well, I know exactly where I got it from. My son brought it home from school. Well, that was rude. I know. I know. So he came home and on the Monday, he suddenly said, I can't taste or smell anything. Mm. And and so immediately we booked him in for a test and took him along and sure enough, came out positive. And he had, he was a bit grotty for a couple of days, but he wasn't that ill. You know, he's 16. He's, you know, he's fine. And then, you know, four days later, I started coughing and my daughter said, mum, go and get a test now. So I did. And I felt fine for a couple of days, felt okay. And then it sometimes hits you a bit later. So I think I was quite under the weather for four or five days. I didn't really get out of bed. I worked in bed with my laptop. I didn't give any singing lessons. I thought it wasn't really fair to give Zoom lessons in bed. No, no. I'm sure there's a law about that one somewhere. Yes. 
Yeah. So I was absolutely fine, really. But it yeah. takes that kind of viral infection can take it out of you. And I noticed it when I went back to running. Two weeks after getting my positive test, you're allowed out. I thought, right, I'll go for a little walk. And I walked a quarter of a mile down the road and I had to stop and sit down and breathe for a while and then walk back slowly. Gee. And this is someone who runs a half marathon every weekend. Yeah. So that's how much it can knock the stuffing out of you. And then you just do a slow build. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's when I got my rehabilitation hat on and said, don't be silly. Take it slowly. Be kind to yourself. You've done nothing wrong. You don't have to punish yourself. Just be gentle and be kind. So this is the self-care. Yes. And what about the voice? What happened to your voice? Did it change? Did you find that as I was talking with Elizabeth Blades, a week ago, who also had COVID, and she said that she lost all her resonance. Did you find that anything happened to your voice through that time? No, I didn't, but then I wasn't really doing much singing. Okay. So I think we notice changes in the things that we do the most and to the most specific level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a simple thing like, running up two flights of stairs, which you might do every day of your life, that's where you'll notice the difference because suddenly it'll be a struggle. And so this is where our sort of this, again, good questions to ask, you know, what is, where have you noticed a difference? What have you noticed that's different about your voice? Yes. And from then to now, have you noticed that your energy levels are still not quite back to what they used to be or have you fully recovered I think I have probably fully recovered. I, I'm still getting tired, but that's other things. Mm-hmm. That's do just you, overworking. Do you think that you being fit, physically fit, certainly did that help your recovery process? Do you think that you recovered quicker because you were physically fit or you are physically fit? Well, yes, you just, yes, I assume so. But then that's a difficult equation because there are people who are physically very fit who've had a dreadful journey with covid Mm -hmm. so it's not you can't just sort of it's not an easy equation to say well you know therefore you will be fine because you're a runner there are people who are you know very very healthy people who are are still suffering a year later Mm. and this is where we're finding out a lot more about the effects of long COVID and what it's doing to the body and how that manifests in different ways in different people and that we need to take notice of it. Yes. And it's going to be with us for a while. Absolutely. And in the UK, are you still teaching online? Are you still in isolation or where's the UK at right now? This week, the children went back to school. After how long? All, oh, since oh. Christmas. Oh, okay. They're back to school, but they have to be tested and they, they're being tested uh, three times to start with just to make sure that they're not bringing virus into school. And, there's, you know, they've still got very strict restrictions within the schools of where they can and can't go. And they've got staggered lunch times and they've got, oh, yeah. you know, so they don't have all the kids milling about at the same time. But that's the first step back after our third lockdown that we've had since Christmas. Yeah. It's slow and we you know we haven't been helped with indecision and and bad decisions from our government but we are where we are. Yeah. And and what about your 
What about your teaching studio? Obviously, then you've been teaching online for many, many months. And how are you coping and how are your students coping with that? My piano is going gradually out of tune. (laughs) Have you calluses? (laughs) It's not being used. Okay, sorry. Yes. Yeah, the change to online teaching. Well, I I had done a fair bit of online teaching before. So it was, I'm not a stranger to it, but it's brought about, I think, some positive changes. It's interesting. Because we do, we focus on the negative. You can't see the person, you can't hear them properly, you can't, you know, all of those things. Yes. And obviously we know those things, but then there are positives. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main one is that you don't have to travel. Yes. So you can work with, you can work with a teacher who lives anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Um. Another positive is that some people feel safer in their own home. So when you're doing rehabilitation work, when somebody's at home, they are going to feel more comfortable with changes being made. There are advantages to just focusing on watching the student. There's no distractions. You're not trying to play the keyboard and do a million other things at once. You're just listening and looking. So I think there are good things to take away from it. And I'm sure that we're going to go on to a more blended learning experience where we have some lessons online and some lessons in the studio. And the same for a lot of our other working environments, so conferences and meetings. Mm, that's I think really we'll, we'll exciting have, to have yeah. that, all that opportunity is, is such a blessing, really, isn't it? It is. It is. So when I was invited to the conference in Adelaide last year, originally when I was invited, it was a, well, would you consider coming virtually and doing it on Zoom? This was before COVID. And I said, you know what? I've been having this conversation with myself, having flown to America that summer and thinking we can't continue to do this. We cannot continue these long haul flights just for the luxury of going to a conference. And so I said, right, I'm going to do one long haul flight every two years. And that's it. Limit it to that. Other than that, everything's got to be virtual or or just not go. Yeah. Because, you know, I think we're talking about the you know, personal fitness and we're talking about COVID and that those are all tiny compared with climate change, yes. know, which is going to kill all of us. So I think... <laughs> In terms of what is important, you know, this online environment is helping towards that too. I think this quote that I've taken from somewhere on social media that was written by you is going to sum a lot. No, no, it was something that I found and it's about your morning run and it kind of ties all of this together and it was my morning run, a thrilling chorus of birdsong competing woodpeckers, the rush of water over the weir. Why would anyone want to replace this with man-made music? Has COVID forced you to change your outlook on life or did you always have an appreciation for those things surrounding you? I was going to ask you that earlier, but you answered that and I think you've gone beyond answering that question. I mean, that's such a beautiful quote. And it was just in the moment. I remember writing it or thinking it. I thought it on the run and then wrote it. Actually, no, I wrote it on the run. Did I did really? post it on the run. Yeah. Wow. And because I was I was running along the river and I could hear antiphonal woodpeckers. There was one over there in the woods. And there was one in the other woods over there. And they were obviously competing for, for a mate. 
mm-hmm. and showing off their thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a woodpeckery noise. Yeah. And it's such fun. You get that in the spring and you just think, wow, I wouldn't have heard that if I'd been blasting my ears with something that, mm-hmm. that I could have been listening to. Yeah. And that doesn't mean to say that man-made music is inferior. Yeah. It's just that there's a place for everything. Yes. But I think underpinning all of that is a love for the environment and for nature and for serenity and the beauty of what we have without all those man-made things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very aware of how lucky I am to live in the countryside where I've got that so that, you know, I'm lucky on so many fronts. Yeah. Lucky to have been born to the parents I was born to. Lucky to have been born where I was born, when I was born. Yeah. Yeah. There's I, an awful Yeah. I feel very grateful too. I'm the opposite to you. I have views of the ocean from where I live, uh, from every room uh, of my home room. So my views are of the Pacific Ocean and it's just beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So I'm, yeah. I don't have the country, but I do have views of the hills from the western side of my apartment but it's great to have that appreciation so we are going to finish up with a couple of final questions and they're just random questions now and about Ginevra so in terms of development either personal or professional development or even pertaining to self-care what is the last book that you have read or perhaps it could be a podcast that you've listened to or a webinar that you've participated in that so when was the last time you engaged in some kind of learning Mm. what was it goodness me well I'm I'm sort of reading books all the time are they fiction no okay very rarely (laughs) yes very very rarely I mean I'm reading stuff that is to do with my work most of the stuff I've been reading in the last year or so has been to do with neurology and learning and emotion Mm. which has been very and again sort of ties in on a a general level as well as very specific level for learning so I would say that's been my journey recently fiction is a treat and it's a luxury that happens when well it used to happen on train journeys but now of course you have a laptop to do your emails on the train used to happen on holiday, but now, of course, you have your laptop and you can do all your work on holiday. That's not good, is it? No. <laughs> the fact that yeah. you but, never get away. But I'm the same as you, though. I don't read fiction either. The last book that I was handed, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say, was Fifty Shades of Grey. Ah. <laughs> and I, I read the first Did you read book. it? It's the most I've read any book, and I think it was about five pages. I was really impressed that I got that far, and I put it down. I've never picked it up again. So I am not a fiction book reader either, so I'm totally with you there. I love reading fiction, but it just the sort of priorities, that's all. Yes, exactly. And I've got stuck in a work mode. Mm-hmm. But as a child, I read avidly the whole time because there wasn't much else to do. And I just read and read and read and read. And so i grown up in a reading culture. Yeah. Okay. And I was also, I was a very naughty child. And We have and so at school, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at school I was always sent, sent to stand outside the door. 
mm-hmm. of the classroom because I was too disruptive in the class. And outside the door was a bookcase. So I was in heaven and I could just stand there and read. And if I heard somebody coming out, quickly put the book back on and stand facing the wall, which is what you're supposed to do. And then as soon as they went, I'd get the book back out. So I would be naughty on purpose to get thrown out of the boring class so I could read. So, so I've spent... Did you read at school then? Sounds like a lot. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I used to read books over and over again. And and I used to read books under the bedclothes at night with a torch. And I used to just read, read and read and read and read. That's incredible. So what is the best piece of advice that you could give anyone or anyone in our singing voice community in terms of vocal hair, uh, vocal, vocal care or anything to help them with their physical well-being? I think the more you know yourself, the better you can make decisions. Mm-hmm. So if you genuinely know yourself, as others would tell you, or you know, you look deeply inside your heart and soul, what makes you happy? What makes you unhappy? What are you really good at? What, not in terms of improvement particularly, but if you know what makes you unhappy, then you can steer away from it and steer towards the happiness. And you're probably then going to end up doing things better and doing things that will give you more fulfillment. And so many major decisions in my life I have made purely on the grounds of what's going to make me happy. Nothing to do with whether I ought to do it or whether I should do it or whether other people are telling me to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to, am I going to go to bed at night looking forward to it? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to go to bed at night rather dreading it? And, and those, I think, are yeah. hugely important self-awareness things. Mm. And that sounds a part of that is saying no to others and not trying to please everybody, which a lot of us tend to do, especially as women and as nurturers. And a lot of people in our teaching community run around caring for everyone else and they don't care for themselves quite so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, everything is a compromise. mm -hmm. Life is a compromise. It is. It is. You know. But you don't want it swinging too much the other way. No. Yeah. What do you think is your greatest accomplishment to date? Oh, in life. In life. um, Yes. In life, producing two amazing children. Yeah. And in your personal, like in your professional career? In my professional career, I think making a few shifts in the culture so that people are able to access information they want to access, so that people are able to see things slightly differently. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've done anything major or profound, but I might have just nudged things a little bit. I think you've uh, along with good nudge. Along with a team of colleagues. And that's where it is. It's actually no one individual does anything. You can only achieve change and achieve anything with a team. I so agree. I so believe in having the team. You can only Mm -hmm. do so much on your own, but you can accomplish so much more when you have that good team of people surrounding you and you work together. And you know, when when you asked, the first answer to your question was, was my two amazing children. Mm. Why are they amazing? It's not because of me, it's because of the team. Yeah. It's because they've got, you know, two parents, they've got grandparents, they've had lovely friends and they've had great neighbours and they've had fabulous schools and they've had that whole wonderful support for them growing up. Yes. The whole culture and the environment. It's, yeah, it's the village. You can't yeah. really, I don't think I can take credit for anything. I've just sort of 
been a little a little working part in a big thing. I think you underestimate yourself there. I'm sure you do. Okay, so in wrapping this up, it's just been such a joy having this. It feels like we've just had a conversation. Uh, it does. Yeah, it's been. It's just been beautiful, and I really appreciate you sharing so much with us in this interview. And if people want to learn more about your program, how can they find out more? Where do they go to? You go to Vocal Health Education. So if you type in Vocal Health Education, you'll get us. If you go to www.vocalhealth.co.uk, that's the actual website address. If you look up my name, you get to my website and then you get directed. You know, we're not hiding. Mm-hmm. We're not difficult to find. The only thing you need to do if you're looking me up is you need to spell my name right and then you'll get in. <laughs> That's a fair comment. <laughs> no yeah. one spells mine right. I always end up with two S's when I only have one. <laughs> yeah. 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 But what I'll do is I'll share your details at the end of the podcast in the show description and we'll share it through social media as well, Ginevra. I think what you're doing is incredible work and I applaud you and I'm sure everyone that's watching is applauding you also and thank you so, so much and and the best of everything, the best in life to you for everything that uh, you want to achieve. Thank you so much. It's just been lovely having a chat. Thank you. We'll see you soon somewhere, even if it's virtually. Yep. Okay. Bye, Ginevra. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Voice and Beyond. Now is an important time for all of us to spread positivity and empowerment in our Singing Voice community. It's time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up for your students feeling energised, empowered and ready to deliver your best. Be the best role model and mentor you can possibly be and watch your students thrive as you do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague who you think will be inspired by this. Copy and paste the link and share it with the people you think will enjoy listening to this show. Please share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. If you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would love to know what it is you enjoyed the most about this episode and what was the biggest takeaway for you. I promise you there are many episodes to follow as I'm committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one. I'd like to finish up with my final thoughts. Remember that to sing is more than just learning how to use a voice. As singers, our whole body is the instrument and our bodies echo what we feel physically, mentally and emotionally. So singing is not just about the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. Please take care of yourself and I look forward to your company next time.